0: I'm cutting my kid's hair. I've been cutting his hair for his whole life. He doesn't know any other way. Do you want it short in the front? Yeah. It was different when I grew up. My dad took me and my brother to the same barber every two or three weeks, and I'd watch in the mirror as the barber would patiently struggle to get my hair to stay in place, spraying it with water and combing it down. My hair would spring up, and he'd spray more water comb it back down, and he always ended up smearing it in place with a palm full of product. you want a mohawk? No. Flat top? Yeah. yeah kind of. No. no.
1: Right.
0: And that was the model I had. Part the hair evenly on one side, brush it over, and, not having hair product at home, I would just put a palm full of tap water over my cowlicks and mat them down which worked until my hair dried. When's the last time you washed your hair? Washed? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until my 20s that I realized my hair worked better without a comb or brush or anything, even a professional cut. In fact, the unruliness of my hair was perfectly suited to the chaos that I could create at home with a pair of scissors. At the time, it didn't seem like a big decision, mostly just a way to save money. But looking back, I realized it was much more than that. It was the beginning of building my own confidence, a feeling I rarely had in youth, the feeling that comes when you stop trying to be someone you're not. And that was my corner. I turned and never looked back. You're listening to The Staple. An arts and culture podcast, podcast presented
1: by the IPRC. The, IPRC.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> okay, let's get in the Apuntia cactus also turns a corner in its development, although it's never trying to be something it's not. Like all fruit-bearing plants, it first makes a flower and then makes the fruit. The flowers of the Opuntia have a very unusual trait. If you touch the stamens, those tiny sprouts inside a flower that bear pollen, they move, always in the same direction, inward. When a bee lands on them, they do the same thing, dilating into this cluster. There are about 40 species of bees flying around the same area, but only three of them are considered superior pollinators. So when the stamens converge, what they're really doing is hiding what's down below, where 80% of the pollen lies in the lower anthers. Only the super-pollinating bees are strong enough to crawl down there to retrieve the bulk of the flower's pollen. So that's stage one. It lasts about 12 hours until the petals close and wither, soon replaced by a prickly pear, stage two. The prickly pear is then eaten by a jackrabbit, or a quail, or a kangaroo rat, with the seeds, of course, carried off in its belly and deposited elsewhere, where a new cactus might grow. And this, naturally, brings us to Aaron.
2: This is some sort of old plastic folder that my dad gave me when he used to work in construction. There's all these blueprints.
0: Stage one for Aaron was drawing, which is stage one for every kid. Drawing is the initial form of quiet expression that we all do. It doesn't require learning a system like a language. You just need time to discover what happens as you drag a crayon across a piece of paper. So, of course, Aaron doesn't remember the initial discovery of this skill.
2: I just remember sort of emerging from the fog of childhood and just being able to do it and liking it. But I don't really remember where it started. Mm -hmm. I'm sure at some point... You know, you get reactions from people when you do certain things. You know, you become the joker and people like you, you tell stories, people think you're funny and want you around. Maybe I started drawing and I got positive feedback at some point and just kept going for it. I don't know. But I always sort of felt like I was the drawing kid in school early on. I know I passed drawings around with people in class, which was fun, but I might have taken a little more time drawing, <laughs> drawing my teacher's head <laughs> in a guillotine than somebody else did.
0: He showed me a bunch of his old drawings, and they're exactly the kind of work that I remember from my own childhood. Not that I could draw myself, but there was always a kid or two who could, instinctively, effortlessly.
2: I haven't looked at some of these for years. This is a
0: trip. Is this all pencil?
2: Yeah, these are pencil, and then I really just drew with whatever was available. My mom would bring home Bix pens and things from work, and I would just use those. And there's just so many erratic things. I would draw it in my the margins of pages, and I would just rip it out if I liked the results and keep it. Right. And then I just shoved them in the folder. Oh yeah, this is all manga.
0: Wow. Beautiful.
2: Thanks. This was like my fifth to eighth grade, I was really into manga, manga. so then I drew that up to maybe like eighth grade, and then teenage phases I did geometric stuff, F.C. Escher type stuff, and then a lot of geometric patterns. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. This. Apparently I was drawing Jane's Addiction's lead singer in high school. <laughs> <laughs> See if I could capture his face. You really did capture it. Thank you.
0: His drawings are highly detailed, with countless small markings to add shading and texture. They're pretty much all made in pencil or
2: pen. I like the precision of a sharp pencil or a pen, because it just got me a nicer result. And I felt like it was more... I maybe just felt like it was easier to control. Like I could do really straight, solid lines, and then I could do shading. Whereas paints, I like how they look, but... I never really used them all that much. So, so it was also probably just impulsive, you know. When I was a kid, we'd go out to... I always remember Black Angus steak chain. You know, I would just grab whatever was around. They'd have, I'd have a pen, you know, my mom would have a pencil or something. And I would just use that on the placemat. So it, it probably just, I realized like, oh, I don't need anything fancy to do this. I just need some time and, and basic material. It's like John Muir, when he when he hiked uh, Mount Whitney, he just had like some crusty bread and some crappy boots. And I thought, looking back, maybe it was the same thing. Maybe I just thought, this works, I'll just use that.
0: And it sounds like drawing was pretty much how he filled his free time growing
2: up. I would just hole up. I was an only child. So I, I had my own room. I could close the door, and just draw away. And sometimes when I was in college, early undergraduate years, I would I supposed to be studying, but I would just close the door and think, this is more interesting, and I would just draw.
0: And then one year, he stopped. Completely stopped drawing. And if I may, Aaron, don't hate me for this, but if I may compare him to a delicate cactus flower, in this one year, his petals wilted, and he became something else.
2: It's really strange. It was the year I moved up here. I had intended, it was 2000 when I moved up to Portland from Arizona, and... I was drawing all the time, filling up notebooks, and then I wanted to be a writer by then. I knew that. There were a few years before I moved up here where I thought, this is the thing I want to do, like in the late 90s. I kept drawing up here, and then I started keeping a schedule, of writing schedule, and I just shifted from one to the other. And I never went back. I never started drawing again.
0: He literally never draws.
2: Not even while waiting for the bus. <laughs> no. <laughs> that see that kind of thing makes me think I should. I used to enjoy it in those moments. I've, but now those moments I feel other ways. I feel, I read books. I try to finish the magazine article that I started somewhere else. Actually, most of the time it's, I'm staring into space, thinking about something that I'm working on, scheming something, or thinking about a new structure, or you know revising somehow. Because those quiet moments when I probably would have been scribbling now, I realize those are those are like writing moments.
0: With his collection of drawings he saved from childhood is the last drawing journal he kept. And in it, you can actually see the gradual change, the wilting of his former stage.
2: This notebook is the last notebook I ever really filled with any drawings. There's a lot of abandoned sketches and things that were just experiments, you know, throughout all my drawings, but these definitely look like I'm just maybe fizzling out. And this is a yeah this is it. So maybe the last drawing without knowing it was 1172000. Fittingly an Apuntia cactus, a prickly pear.
0: Which leads me to the idea that those countless hours and years of drawing were all in preparation for his next phase where he sits and quietly fills a page with words until a picture emerges. A picture that is hopefully powerful enough to transform you, the reader, into a foraging animal, ingesting that idea and that feeling that he's conveying and carrying it along with you to propagate elsewhere. For a lot of folks, there's a moment when you realize, I'm going the wrong way. Or maybe you were going the right way all along, but now suddenly the right way is over there. This episode is about those who turn. It can be small turns, like realizing your head is better shaped for a sloppy cut than a professional one.
2: Oh, and guess what? He's cutting my hair. Dun, dun, dun. Or learning that you should work with
0: words instead of lines.
2: I follow my bliss, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, which explains why I had a lot of retail jobs. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then there's Joe Hamilton, the feature of this episode. I met Jo on a rainy morning in her studio, out in East Portland.
3: But Yeah, so you can change direction, you can do whatever you want.
0: Here she is, showing me what it sounds like when she crochets. And
3: then, if you want to go back in, it's a little more tricky.
0: It's quiet. Real quiet.
3: So, yeah, all you'll get is the sound of the yarn pulling over my finger.
0: Quieter than knitting.
3: Yeah, I mean, knitting Knitting makes that noise because the needles clack off of each other. Mm-hmm. Crochet doesn't make any sound.
0: This was a surprise to me because, well, I know nothing about crochet.
3: Oh, and there's only one hook. Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: Jo learned to crochet from her mother and her grandmother.
3: Both my mum and my gran were knitters and crocheters. I learned how to knit, and then my gran taught me my grand did more crochet than my mom, but I basically sort of learned both when I was really young.
0: This was in Glasgow in the 70s.
3: People were still wearing a lot of handmade clothing. You know, I had school jumpers. I mean, you have to wear a uniform over there, but I had school jumpers that my mom knitted for me. I had socks that my mom knitted for me.
0: She continued to crochet and knit off and on, not thinking much of it. She was also drawing and painting, And when she turned 18, she went to the Glasgow School of Art. At the time, it was a traditional art school and backwards in a traditional way.
3: The teachers, the tutors in my department were all, they all had tenure, they were all older guys, they were all kind of a bit lechy. (laughs) And the the student body was uh, two to one, girls to boys. And there were only, I think, at least in the fine arts department, there were only, I think, two or three female tutors and the rest are all men and that's all the department sculpture painting environmental art like everything
0: i have to stop here to add depending on how loudly you're listening to this you might notice a chewing sound in the background hold on let me let me just dial it up yeah that's it that's her little dog Lying between piles of yarn and chewing on something Joe knitted for her, throughout the interview. Is that a thing you made for him that he was chewing?
3: It on? sort of. It was like it was like a potholder, which uh, he kind of decided he wanted, and then uh, and then I did attach. I tried to attach some extra stuff to it that I thought it's just cotton, you know because keep, I keep buying these so-called indestructible dog toys and like, this is just indestructible. This used to have, you know, back legs and a uh, squeaker.
0: Right.
3: And I eventually had to cut parts of it off. Yeah. So yeah, so I did, I did like add to that and I thought it might take him a while to dismantle it. It's been about two weeks now, so that's not bad. That's pretty good.
0: <laughs> anyway, at the art school, Jo was still drawing and painting, but she was also searching for another medium some different way to express herself she started some fires
3: i was putting things on top of canvas and then burning them basically burning them in my <laughs> oven in my student <laughs> flat at home and what you get is basically a, a photogram of the object oh, cool. and so you get this kind of reverse image and so i was using all kinds of metal objects mostly like kitchen objects and cutlery and Whisks and things, and then so you would get this these objects kind of floating on the canvas, and then you would get the metal bars um, that they were sitting on. You get all these cool patterns. So I was doing stuff with that, and I was doing paintings in sugar, and then burning those, which my tutors were just like, (laughs) they weren't into it. (laughs) They were not into
0: it. The Lecce tenured professors were not into it. Fortunately, that didn't bother Joe. She finished the program anyway and left it all behind, left Scotland, and came to America to visit friends. They were moving to Portland to go to the art school here, PNCA, and Joe tagged along.
3: We got into Portland I think on the it's like the fourth of January or something in nineteen ninety four, so it was a different town. They were enrolling in college and I just uh, went off on my own and wandered around and explored Portland. And I actually, even in that month, I met people that I still know. You know, just people talking to people in coffee shops and bars and stuff. And during that month, I decided that I was going to come back and live here. So.
0: (laughs) 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 That sound was her dog again, throwing his toy into the air and trying to make the rubber end of it bounce on the floor. Anyway, Joe came back to Portland just as she planned staying for most of 1995 and then returning for good in 96. She found a job waiting tables and continued to make art.
3: I kept drawing and painting, and you know, and I showed my work in coffee shops and bars and stuff and had little art shows. So I kept making work, but I still was kind of looking for a different medium, and I had tried... I took some film classes and video and... Still felt like I was, you know, still looking for the medium that that was mine specifically.
0: Then, in 2006, she went to an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Craft. At the time, it was still at its original location on Southwest Corbett. And she saw all this art made with techniques that are more often associated with craft.
3: There was embroidery and tapestry and sewing and... There, was, uh, there wasn't actually any crochet in it but all kinds all kinds of different work and I came basically had kind of an aha moment uh, there and uh, on the way home with my friend I was like I'm going to try I think I'm going to try and crochet a painting and I basically went home that day and I had a little drawing uh, that I'd done that was just kind of an imagined view of Portland kind of from the east side looking towards the river um, but it was mostly made up and it was just a marker pen sketch, it was just black and white. So I just kind of used it as a basis because I wanted to do um, a cityscape.
0: So she crocheted this drawing. It started small. The drawing was only four by six and she quickly wanted to go beyond its borders. So she took pictures of different landmarks around town, bridges and buildings for reference to add to her crocheted cityscape. She did not yet have a large collection of yarn to choose from But she worked with what she had.
3: Yeah, so the first piece was just, uh, like I say, it sort of evolved more like a patchwork quilt, just like a piece at a time. I always think of it as when you see the world map where they open it up and it's got sections sort of jutting out. It's kind of like that, almost like if you took Portland apart. different has these different legs that kind of go off.
0: She worked on it for two and a half years. She probably would have finished it sooner, but she was also working full-time at the restaurant. When it was done... It was 10 feet wide and five feet tall. While working on it, she showed the cityscape to her friends at work. They couldn't help but joke about the size of it. It seemed to be growing out of control.
3: And they were like, oh, you're gonna crochet your way to Gresham and (laughs) making bad jokes. (laughs) And as a joke, I was like, you know, shut up or I'll crochet you.
0: And she did. She crocheted portraits of her co-workers.
3: You know, I was liking where the cityscape was going. I was like, I wonder if I can actually, if I could actually get a likeness of someone with crochet. I know, you know, I had no idea if it would work, if you could really get, you know, a resemblance or not, because it's yarn. You know, it doesn't do exactly what you want it to do all the time. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, I saw that. He's entertaining himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and me. Uh, sorry, that, that's her dog again. He's throwing his chew toy in the air and it's hitting him on the head. It's a terrier.
3: Oh. He's always got to be doing something.
0: Anyway, Joe crocheted portraits of the servers and the cooks and the dishwashers. Looking back on them now, she can see how much she was still learning at the time.
3: You know, again, I only had I only had a certain number of colors that would work. So you can kind of, when you look at the portrait, you can see it's pretty simplistic. And there were structural things that I didn't figure out. Like I I did rows across his nose instead of up and down, which meant he looked like his nose had been broken <laughs> in several places. So there were things that, even with the first portrait, I discovered. At the same time, when I put it on the wall after it was finished, I started laughing because it it looked like him. I mean, it was wonky, but it did look like him and it definitely had something of him in it. So I knew I was onto something and then I just kept going.
0: After two and a half years, she finished the large cityscape and 12 portraits of her coworkers. And she arranged to show them all at a coffee shop downtown.
3: And then, yeah, the internet just did its thing. Like people were taking pictures and posting them online. And I was getting, um, you know, Google, what do you call it when they send you, if you've been mentioned somewhere?
0: Oh, an alert or
3: something? Yeah, like a Google alert that somebody posted something on Pinterest or whatever. And and I sold, I sold a portrait from the wall.
0: And the show led to a lot of support and encouragement from the craft community. Though the artist world was a little slower to accept her work.
3: All the early support that I had was from the craft community.
0: Yeah, they, they were probably more open to it.
3: I think so I'm more excited and just enthusiastic Unless you know, the art world's a little bit more like, we'll just stand by and wait and see if we think this is going to be any good or if it's mm. just a bit more standoffish and, mm. you know, not like I'm one is better than the other, but, you know, my, I felt like I, I'm an artist and had a background in fine art.
0: And as an artist, she was creating images with yarn in a way that nobody else was doing. At first, almost obsessively, she was looking to find someone that was crocheting portraits in cityscapes, some colleague or peer, but there was no one. There was one person that was sort of similar in the South.
3: He's got a website called Crochet by Numbers. And so basically what he does is people send him a photo and he pixelates it and turns it into a pattern that then they follow row by row. And it's usually um, sort of sepia tones or Mm -hmm. black and white. And so basically what he does then is, you know, each pixel, you know, refers to a stitch. And so you get like a blanket or a pillowcase or a cushioned cover from it. But it, it looks like a pixelated photo because you're just, you're just following the photo exactly and doing rows. Right. So it's more like a sort of a painting by numbers or and it, and it doesn't look like a painting.
0: By contrast, Joe never follows a pattern. She just starts with two specific points.
3: I always start with the eyes and then work out from there. And I try and use the rows of crochet in the same way that you would use paint strokes to kind of follow the form, follow the contours of the face and the structure of the skull.
0: So there's no planning beforehand? You're not drawing it out?
3: No, I just look at the photo and then make the work. And the size just happens because the amount of detail that I want to put in just makes the work the size it is. So I don't really think about what size things are going to be necessarily. And I, when I first started making the work, it was you know I was kind of surprised when they started turning out so big, but it was just it was just the material that kind of dictated the the form, I suppose.
0: How big are the bigger ones?
3: I mean, they're they're all at least twice life size I think of them as being twice life size but then sometimes I, if I take a picture of myself next to them, they're even bigger than that um. <laughs> <laughs> sorry the dog's he's really
1: entertaining himself
3: <laughs> yeah. at least he does that yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, um. the
0: dog again He's singing and doing this little dance, kicking the yarn all over.
3: He's like tossed all the yarn around. It's made a big mess. Yeah.
0: Anyway, the main concern for Joe when crocheting a portrait is trying to capture the substance of the person.
3: I try and get the person, like make sure that I've got their expression in it so it isn't necessarily like I'm not thinking in terms of like realistic versus non it's more just um, trying to capture their energy I suppose Mm -hmm. you know which I've heard a lot of people say that they they feel when they look at the portraits that they know who the person is or they know them or somebody familiar so it's not just sort of a blank face or just a stranger so they feel like they're real people.
0: Right. And the, <coughs> you mean people that don't actually know the person?
3: Yeah, just right. people who are just seeing seeing the work. So, and I feel like that's that, you know, I've kind of done my job if if that's, you know, the response that people are getting is a sort of an emotional response to the to the work. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: It took about 4 years after her first showing, but the art world did begin to take notice. The Jordan Schnitzer Museum in Eugene offered to show her work. And the Lara Russo Gallery in Portland invited her to take part in a group show for young and emerging artists. She says she was probably a little old to take part in the show, and I I want to let you hear her say that, but the dog is... um,
3: Technically, I was actually too old to be considered young and emerging anymore, but they allowed me into this show, uh, even though I was over 40. Was I over 40? Yeah, I think it was over 40. (laughs) which I guess you're officially old at that point anyway uh, and that was just to see what the response was and see if work sold and then they thought about it and they offered two of us uh, from the group show um, they kept the work for the summer and then you know I made inquiries about whether I wanted, they wanted me to pick my work up and that's when they said well actually we think we'd like you to be represented here Mm-hmm. Which was great because you know it's nice to have a sort of a home base like that in your own town, Yeah. and um, it sort of gives you that clout, I guess. I Means some people will buy work off coffee shop wall because they love it, but a lot of people they kind of want to know that it's uh, real art, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> a bit yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, it definitely brings a different group of people in to look at your work. And people are like, oh, you know, because that gallery's been around forever. So, love, you know, most people know about it. So off the work. Off. showing off now.
0: The portrait she's currently working on is sprawled out on the floor, which she does once they get too big. And the dog just did a backflip onto it, which is... Not allowed.
3: That's him trying to get attention. He does that. He knows it's wrong. He's just like, I'm going to lie on the work. I don't, I don't put things on the floor until they're too big to work on the futon. Right. And this got so big that I had to lay it out to see that everything was working. Just to put it on the floor, which means, of course, it's more susceptible to attack by dog.
0: <laughs> Being represented by Lara Russo has enabled her to make art full time. Though, of course, it hasn't made her rich. Like many people, her and her partner had to move to the outer east side of town as rent prices have increased. But one benefit of her medium is that materials can be inexpensive. There are always sacks of yarn at thrift stores, and knitting friends will give her spools of yarn that might not be particularly warm or soft enough for a sweater, or the color might be a little off. And that's exactly what Jo's after
3: it doesn't matter to me what it's made of it's the color is really what that's like the of top importance to me is what color it is i mean i like using weird textures and i like i even like using yarns that change color i used a lot of those like with the nudes because i was covering sort of big expanses of you know flesh tone but i wanted to have a bit of fun with it so i'd use a lot of the sort of those pastel baby yarns, but mix them with another colour, so you'd get these kind of subtle variations in in colours, parts turning blue and green and and then I use a lot of different thicknesses as well because I quite often I'll mix the yarn while I'm working with it, so I'll crochet a few strands at once and so if the yarn, if it's more like crochet thread, then I can use, you know, I can use a thicker wool of one colour and then a thin thread running through it, that'll just kind of appear, you know, really subtly. So it's sort of like mixing paint in a way.
0: In her studio, she has floor-to-ceiling racks of yarn, organized by color. She's always adding to it, and she hopes one day to find a particular color that she's never been able to replace.
3: I had this vintage yarn that I'd gotten from the Salvation Army or something at some point, and it was the perfect color. I called it Lip Pink. It was a perfect color for white people's lips, <laughs> and, and it had a sheen to it in the same way that lip skin has a sheen to it. And it was just, it was the perfect color. I didn't have to do anything to it. Like, if you know, if there was no lipstick or anything else involved. It was like, it was that was the right color. And then I used most of it probably in the first series of portraits. And then I remember suddenly realizing at one point, man, you know, I'm never. I'll never be able to find this color again because it's vintage, and so uh, I have been on a hunt for that particular ball of yarn. I I used to take it to yarn stores and hold it up against all the different pinks, and then they would be too color would be too cool or too too bright or too pale, um, and so I've never been able to find that particular color again.
0: In 2014 she started making portraits of residents at an AIDS care facility where she's been volunteering for the past 12 years longer than she's been crocheting art
3: I'm a volunteer cook there I cook every I cook lunch every Wednesday the facility is called our house of Portland it's been around for I think over 30 years and it started out being a hospice when people were dying pretty quickly back then and now it's they call it residential care facility so some people who come in are are going to die and are coming in for end of life care but some people are coming in because they've maybe had a stint in hospital and they need to recover, they need nursing care but not doctors and um, they need to just get their health stabilised and you know there are people now that get get well enough to move out and go and live on their own so it's kind of a A crossroads of those two things, people getting better and some people not getting better. Mm
0: -hmm. The portrait on her floor now is one of the patients there, and it looks close to being finished.
3: I've been working on that portrait for the last two months. Wow,
0: that, that goes fast. It looks like you yeah. to die. You
3: say I say. <laughs> I say that's a long time.
0: Well two months is that like five days a week, six hours a day or something?
3: More than that. Wow yeah your,
0: your hands don't get tired.
3: Um, my if if I have a deadline my uh, my hand gets tired. Um, I need to learn to do it with the other hand I think. It's, it's not both hands. <clears throat> No, just one, one, one hand to hold the work and one hand with the hook. Funnily enough, I uh, draw and paint with my left hand but I crochet with my right hand because I was taught by right-handed people. So I think I could learn to do it with my left hand since I'm actually left-handed or at least ambidextrous. So. You
0: totally could then.
3: Yeah. Wow. So I was like, if if anything ever happens, if I break my arm, <laughs> I could still use the other Yeah, if you take the other up skateboarding. Hand. Uh, um...
0: um That's really it. Joe Hamilton, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, would you stop?
1: All of the electronic music in this episode was made by Robert Maciel. The guitar and bass playing was by Jeff Langston. And the music you're hearing now is by Paper Gates. Aaron Gilbreth? who was featured in the first part of the episode, has been published in Harper's, The New York Times, Paris Review, Tin House, and The Believer, among many others. His new collection of essays, Everything We Don't Know, is coming out from Curbside Splendor this November. Joe Hamilton's work can be seen at her website, joehamiltonart.com, and the gallery that represents her has recently changed its name to the Rousseau-Lee Gallery, This episode was produced and edited by myself, Sonny Bleckinger. My voice sounds suddenly different because while editing and putting that whole episode together, I got sick. Special thanks to Matthew Anderson of the literary podcast Unknown Words. Matthew was kind enough to lend us some audio equipment for this episode. Subscribe to his podcast and ours on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and pretty much anywhere else. Questions or comments? Email us at podcast at iprc.com Thank you for listening.
2: God loves a
3: terrier Yes he does God loves a terrier That's because small,
2: sturdy, bright, and true, they give their love to you God didn't miss a stitch be it dog or be it bitch,
0: when he made the Norwich merrier with its cute little terrier. Yes, God loves
3: a terrier.